Welcome to The Lion, the Witch, and the Evangelicals, the fifth season of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. I am Crispin Mayfield, and I'm a therapist. I'm D.L. Mayfield, and I'm a writer and neighbor. And we discuss evangelical artifacts from the 80s and 90s. This season, we're tackling everybody's favorite kids series, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. So join us as we return to childhood and rediscover what's special about this series as we keep our eye out for themes of dominant theology. Welcome to episode two of The Lion, the Witch, and the Evangelicals. Today we're starting with our first interview. Today we'll be listening to an interview I did with Maria Sanchico Ciceri, who is a professor of literature at Bard College and wrote an incredible book on sort of the rise of fantasy literature in the 20th century, and that includes her doing a bunch of study on what she calls the Oxford School, which uh, was basically started by Tolkien and Lewis, and how they changed the entire literature curriculum at Oxford to be all about medievalism, and it's very northern Eurocentric, and they influenced a ton of popular fantasy writers, which we'll get to in the interview, all the way down to J.K. Rowling. So, I like starting with this interview because it takes it from this little, you know, focus on Lewis to seeing how he really was a part of shaping this entire culture and how do we sort of engage that culture, you know, in 2020. Mm. It's a great interview. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about. Like, it's not just Lewis. It's like he actually left this legacy for better or for worse, which you guys get into yeah. in this mm-hmm. interview. Right. But first, we have our Dear Woman segment uh, dear what now? <laughs> I was hoping I could get away with that. Dear Wormwood, uh-huh. because each week we're going to be uh, looking at a couple of quotes from the screw tape letters, and uh, you got to tell me whether it's true or not. So, okay, because people, so evangelicals love to misquote or misattribute Lewis quotes, right? Right, yeah. And love to share them on Facebook. So we're just going to do this. Right. Like I mentioned last time, Mm -hmm. when I Googled C.S. Lewis quotes, Uh out of the top 10 that came up, three of them were false. Like that is the level of like misquoting we're talking about here. And just to refresh people's memories, The Screwtape Letters was a book written by C.S. Lewis, written in the style of letters from a demon to his like demon protege right so it's whenever you hear the things it's like you got to think in opposite terms yeah right it's coming from a demon exactly so all right um so here here's a passage you got to tell me if it's true or false keep his mind on the inner life he thinks his conversion is something inside him and his attention is therefore chiefly turned at the present state of his own mind Encourage this. Keep his mind off of the most elemental duties of directing it to the most advanced spiritual ones. I think that's real. Yeah. Oh, okay. Definitely. So okay. it's like the demon is encouraging the little demon, uh-huh. the mentor, to like focus on like the idea of spirituality being within and right. having no impact on what you actually do with your yeah. life. That's great. Uh, how about this one? Be sure that the patient remains completely fixated on politics. <laughs> <laughs> Arguments, political gossip, and obsessing on the faults of people they have never met serves an, as an excellent distraction from advancing in personal virtue, character, and the things the patient can control. 
Make sure to keep the patient in a constant state of angst, frustration, and general disdain toward the rest of the human race in order to avoid any kind of charity or inner peace from further developing. Ensure that the patient continues to believe that the problem is out there in the broken system rather than recognizing okay, there is a stop. problem I'm with himself. I'm going to stop you right there. I just wanted to get that last part in about uh-huh. the broken system. Don't fix it in the broken system. Yeah, that is not C.S. Lewis. No, that is, is that. some Christian typing away in their computer in 2020 because they want us to stop talking about Black Lives Matter. feels personal. I, I don't want to be in a state of angst either. Right. You just can't help it right now. I know. Yeah. That's obviously fake. Yes. Do you, I bet that's been shared a lot, though. Yeah. That's been, I mean, that's been around for a while. Yeah. Uh, Christianity Today had an article that was like, well, this was a well meaning person that wanted to, like, honor C.S. Lewis's legacy by. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, which ties into our Patreon only podcast. Just mm-hmm. wanted to throw that out there. We're mm-hmm. going to be talking about politics this month and yeah. next month because yeah. what else are we going to be talking about? Yeah. So you can always uh, go to our website and find our Patreon there. Just wanted to let you guys know about that um, as we're continuing to talk about Lewis on the main podcast. Yeah. Uh, So a few quick things I wanted to throw out there before we get to the interview. Uh, I think that really where Ciceri kind of um, shines is she's able to as an academic kind of take a step backwards from some of these questions I've been asking myself as someone who is a Christian and who you know grew up with the Narnia books and I'm just wondering how to approach them now and I feel like she gives some really great advice for that so I want people to be listening Um, especially this idea of like paying attention to our desires and what enchants us um, as children and even as adults but not just accepting it you know as it is, but also thinking like, where do we want to go in the future? How can we maybe, you know, coax our desires and what we get pleasure out of to be more diverse, um, to not be so narrow. Here's one thing I thought was really interesting. She said kind of near the beginning of the interview that people right now, they don't have a problem with diversifying the books they read to their kids, but what they do struggle with is reevaluating what is a classic and I just thought that was a really interesting distinction. So I think reevaluating what makes a classic is exactly in line with what what Ciceri does in her book by looking at the Oxford School and all these authors coming out of it. She's really asking us to look at who holds the locus of power and who gets to determine what is a classic or not. And that's still something we struggle with today, even though we are seeing more diversity in children's stories in publishing. Um, there's still that you know, thread hanging over all of us of who gets to decide what is a classic. So I think this is a great conversation. I had one question for you, Crispin. Okay. Uh, you know, since this podcast is a little bit about white evangelicals, how much they love Narnia, do you think evangelicals, and this is what Lewis would say, as a Christian, he's drawn to enchantment, drawn to fairy stories, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think white evangelicals are, like, drawn to enchantment, or is it more like they're stubbornly (laughs) anti-intellectual what do you think what's really interesting is that there is so much in the biblical story that we can glean and find uh you know the, the story this ancient wisdom and yet Christians take it as science. Mm-hmm. And I think like they get really muddled there around like especially because they don't want like our like thinking about 
C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, like there has to be some sort of like biblical narrative behind it if we're going to get on board. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. And so I think that actually like takes a lot of the enchantment out of things. Oh, yeah. I would say so. I would say that's probably why Narnia and The Lord of the Rings are important to a lot of evangelicals, because that might have been our first experience with fairy stories and enchantment. Would, mm -hmm. would you agree? Yeah, there was so much skepticism of anything else. Yeah, and, and the the Bible is not a source of enchantment for me as a kid. Right, no, up. totally. Not at all. So, yeah, I think that's an important thing to keep in the back of our mind. Do we have the muscles developed to seek after enchantment. And as, um, you know, I talked with other academics and people, I, I really do think the more I looked into C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, the more I was like, there is some enchantment to be found in here. And there's some worthwhile things. Um, I don't know if I have great skills to be able to find enchantment, but it's something I want to pursue. What enchanted you as a kid? Yeah, I don't know. I think that that's kind of a hard question for me. And it's something that I feel like in my own life, I've had to reassess. I was really into narratives where people were suffering or people were in poverty and other people helped them out of it. Like I, I imagine can, that I know. And like, the, I remember there's this biography of Helen Keller that I was just obsessed with because it's actually a, a biography of her tutor, Andy Sullivan. She grew up like in a poor house and her brother died of TB in front of her. And then she grew on, you know, grew up to be a tutor to make money and then ended up teaching Helen Keller how to be able to communicate with the outside world. Oh my, see, that doesn't sound very enchanting, but like, I would imagine myself in that world, right? Over and over and over again. Now looking back, I'm like, that's fine. That's fine. Um, but then when you take into account the fact that I mostly read like missionary biographies and all the other stuff, I'm like, okay. There's obviously something here about seeing myself in this role as a, a white savior or, um, you know. Well, it just really strikes me because when I was a kid, I always imagined I was Robin Hood and I was like lost in the in the woods and, you know, imagining like forging different weapons and like, you know, like it just was that which is actual enchantment it had nothing to do with like <laughs> the greater good oh. or... The gospel. That's what I'm or... saying. I'm not good at this stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it's okay. So as you listen to this interview, keep keep these questions in mind. Think about what enchanted you as a kid. What maybe you want to uh, move forward to pursue as enchantment. There's lots of great links in our show notes about authors. Um, Ciceri mentioned that you can check out if you're looking to go beyond this Oxford school. All right. Let's go to the interview. Okay, well, I'm so excited we get to talk to someone who is actually an academic and actually knows what they're talking about, which is always great. Um, and so today we are talking to Maria Sachiko Sassiri. I'm so excited to have you here. And I would love it if you would tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. You did write a book called Reenchanted that is all about like the rise of children's fantasy literature, right, in the 20th century. And you wrote about C.S. Lewis, but tell us a little bit more about you and where you're teaching and the work you're doing. Thanks. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, yeah, I am an associate professor of literature and the director of the Center for Experimental Humanities at Bard College, which is a small liberal arts college in New York. And um, I'm very lucky to be able to do a wide array of things. I teach children's literature, popular culture, media studies. And um, really have the freedom to dive into thinking about all different kinds of 
media forms, narratives, and, and the ways that we use stories to shape our everyday lives. Um, and the funny thing is I started actually as a medieval studies student um, in graduate school. I actually went to Oxford and um, was at Oxford uh, to do my PhD on the project that ended up becoming my book. So I was able to study about C.S. Lewis, about J.R. Tolkien, and um, some of the students that they taught at Oxford while I was at Oxford. And so that was super interesting for me and gave me a real like grounding in thinking about the origins, both physical and intellectual, of a lot of the kinds of work that they were doing that then spill over into the writing that they did for popular audiences as well as the writing they did for academics. Wow, I love it. So obviously C.S. Lewis ended up becoming the most well-known because of the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, even though a lot of people like myself, we we grew up reading all of his, you know, religious work, but it's obviously Narnia that has sort of withstood the test of time. So you said you first were studying medieval literature. What does that mean? And how did that lead you to C.S. Lewis? Well, when I was in undergrad, I um I don't, I don't want to get like deep into the background of my story, but um, I definitely knew I wanted to do something that would make a difference in the world and that, um, you know, was meaningful to me. But I kept sneaking literature courses on the side. And one of the courses I took early on that really blew my mind was the medieval women's writing course. And just thinking about the profound differences as well as the profound connections between contemporary women's experiences and medieval women's experiences got me really interested in just thinking about that kind of literature. And um, so I ended up kind of taking a whole bunch of medieval courses on the side while I was trying to figure out what I was really going to major in. And then the last minute I just said, all right, fine, I'll be an English major. Um, and But at that point, I was also had the opportunity at that point, I also had the opportunity to take a um, fairy tale course, which was spanning kind of early fairy tales up through Harry Potter. And that course made me go back to thinking about some things that had happened to me when I was a kid. Um, I write about this in the preface of my book, actually, about how um, I grew up just loving fairy tales, like crazy loving fairy tales, and read every collection I could find in the library, every library I could get into. And then one day when I was like nine or 10, I came in from outside and was, I went to the bathroom, I was washing my hands and looked at the mirror and it like hit me like a ton of bricks that I would never be a blonde eyed, a, a blonde haired, blue eyed fairy tale princess. And that those stories were just not about me. And it was so embarrassing because like, obviously that's true. I'm Japanese Italian. I'm in, born in America. You know, I grew up in the American South and, you know, it, that's just what it is. But it was this shocking, really embarrassing moment of alienation from these kinds of stories set in this magical mm -hmm. medieval past. Um, and so then I kind of put them aside for a long time. I, I didn't read Harry Potter until I was in college. Um, and so when I was taking this course, when I was in college, it gave me this chance to think about what are these stories? What are they doing? How did they become so ingrained in American culture that a kid with a background like mine would think that that's my culture? You know, it's just, it's what it is. And then have that feeling of like shock and distance when I realized that actually they're not really about me. And um, since working on this project, actually recently I had a student, uh, a student of color say uh, that she and her friends, you know, this is such a common experience. They just call it the moment. And there's all kinds of writing out there about this. Um, you know, I, in my book, I refer to Toni Morrison, you know, and the bluest eye, which is like this incredible 
literary example of what that kind of alienation from mainstream white culture feels like. But all of this got me really interested in thinking about the special role that fantasy plays in particular um, in shaping people's dreams and then kind of letting them down for a lot of people. But also, you know, it still has the power to, to hook you in the beginning, to, to enchant you. Um, and so how is it that it can do both things? How do we reconcile all of this, as well as what's the history of how it got there? That was a long-winded answer to your question. I loved it because you're talking about these two almost, they are conflicting things that I think keep coming up as I've read more about C.S. Lewis and, and other authors like him, which, you know, Lewis himself was very intrigued by what makes people love fairy stories. And and he loved fairy stories, right? And so did some of his buddies. And I think that's a shocking thing for me to think about because I do view them as these like stuffy English Oxford people who just happen to write some good stories every once in a while but you're saying no they they really had thought about enchantment and joy they experienced that as readers themselves and then they also gave that experience to other readers and yet right there comes a point when you read that when you're like this isn't actually for me I'm actually not represented here and how do we as just human beings in the world deal with books like this and, and authors like this and it seems like that is something you have thought a lot about. So I wondered, it's such a huge question and I'm sorry to ask it, but let's, let's maybe hone in on, um, the, the Narnia books. How, how did you, did you grow up reading them? I guess is a good first place to start. I did. And I love them. Yeah. I, I read them. Yeah, and so, yeah. And so now how do you sort of like, would you want to read those books to your kids? Would you want to introduce them to them? How, how do you sort of deal with that tension of uh, being enchanted by them? And and maybe you can also help unpack for the listeners, what are some of the, the real problems of who is represented in those texts? Yeah, I mean, I haven't decided about reading them to my kids. Um, my daughter is still really young. And um, so I we're not at chapter books yet. But um it's, it's something I've been thinking about, of course. I teach them all the time. Um, one of the really interesting uh, pieces of feedback I get from my students a lot is um, that experience of rereading and the sense of profound betrayal <laughs> and sorrow um, because the kind of magic and enchantment that they experienced as a child um, suddenly becomes shot through with political awareness as an adult as they can read much more clearly uh, a lot of what uh, the kind of underlying ideologies that Lewis includes in the text. Um, and part of that is, uh, you know, the kind of blatant Christian allegory, which some people are totally fine with, but actually a lot of my students are Jewish and they had no idea. Um, and yeah, oh, I've had a, I've had a or secular okay. or, you know, I've, I've had a lot of people mm-hmm. I've spoken to who had no idea that, that, you know, the Christ's passion was the, uh, you know, kind of the narrative backbone of the line, the witch in the wardrobe and um, feeling really like hurt to find out that they'd been reading what amounted to them as a piece of propaganda. Um, so that's kind of interesting um, to think mm-hmm. about it in that, from that perspective, um, as well as of course the um, kind of representation of people of color, you know, the Kalormans are these kind of turban wearing dark skinned, scimitar wielding people in the South who are constantly trying to like invade the European looking lands of Archenland and Narnia. Um, and they're like ruled by despotic people and you know, the food makes you sick, like, you know, all kinds of things like that. Um, you know, and, and representations of women are quite uh, hierarchical and 
profoundly conservative in a lot of ways. Um, you know, and there's just a lot of that kind of thing that's mixed in with all of the adventure and fantasy and, and magic, which, you know, I've, I think a lot of people are happy to diversify the children's books they offer their kids, but most people are much more uncomfortable thinking about not passing down the classics um, and uh, reevaluating what they think should be the classics. And that's something I'm still working through myself. You know, I, I teach children's literature, so I teach the classics because it's part of understanding a lineage and heritage of how um, modern notions of childhood have come to be. Uh, but uh, sometimes, you know, you have to pause because I'm not so sure I always feel so good about the ways in which modern notions of childhood have come to be. And uh, so when it when it comes to my own personal life and how I'm uh, <laughs> taking part in it, that's something I'm, I'm working out. That's so fascinating. And even as you're talking, I was thinking about how it seems like C.S. Lewis himself was trying to reimagine some classics for his own age. Would, would you say that's true? Like thinking about, I think, you know, George MacDonald's fairy stories were pretty Victorian in, in some senses and, and, you know, I'm thinking even like the King Arthur stories, like we're in this language that not everybody would understand. Do you think he was in a way trying to reimagine the classics himself? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of my book is actually looking at the relationship that between the work that Lewis and Tolkien did as scholars and the work they did as uh, popular fiction writers. And the work is, I argue, absolutely part of the same mission. Um, they were academics, but they were pretty vocal anti-modernist academics at a time when mm. English curricula were just figuring themselves out. English is a really young field, actually. Um, and so while English curricula were like, oh, maybe we should get on board with this modernism thing. We should be reading T.S. Eliot. We should be checking out this Virginia Woolf lady. You know, this was starting to happen around the 1930s. Um, Tolkien and Lewis were like, no way. <laughs> um, Tolkien wanted to make the Oxford curriculum stop before Shakespeare. Um, he didn't get that through, uh, but he did manage to, But and Tolkien and Lewis were working together on this. They did manage to overhaul the undergraduate English curriculum at Oxford so that the vast majority of what students were reading was from the Middle Ages. And it was magical and uh, fantastical and, um, yeah, uh, <laughs> very much like a kind of precursor to fantasy and uh, drew upon the same kinds of... Um, geographical, emotional, spiritual uh, elements that they really had enjoyed in their own Victorian children's upbringings. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's a lot of the work that I then do is look at the uh, the people who studied at Oxford under that curriculum, um, which that curriculum was in place until about 1970, and some parts of it are still there today. Um, people like Susan Cooper, who wrote The Dark is Rising, Quintet, Diana Wynne-Jones, who wrote tons and tons of fantasy uh, novels, including like Howl's Moving Castle and a whole bunch of other ones. Um, uh, Philip Pullman, who's quite famous, uh, he disagrees with C.S. Lewis a lot, but also um, draws a lot from that curriculum and that tradition, as well as uh, an English, uh, another English children's writer called Kevin Crossley Holland. So I look at their writing and the kinds of fantasy that they produced as a kind of second wave of this whole group of six authors that I call the Oxford School of Children's Fantasy Literature. And thinking about how they, at, you know, starting with Tolkien and Lewis writing in the 30s and 50s, and then rolling through the 60s and 70s and up through today, through the second wave of authors, end up being this major push in children's fantasy writing um, that was really writing in a mode that Tolkien and Lewis inaugurated in the 20th century, 
it drew on all these precursors that you're talking about, people like George MacDonald, things like Arthurian legend, as well as straight from these medieval texts. Um, but then it was reworking these stories for the 20th century in a way that made that kind of writing, this kind of medievalist, fantastical, serious about the magic, um, children going off to other worlds and taking on great missions, um, epic battles between good and evil, those kinds of things, um, and make it really what people think of when they think of fantasy in a lot of ways. Wow. And I wonder if you can just sort of help, help people like myself who, you know, I haven't studied it that much, but what I, first of all, it's really fascinating to think what you're saying that C.S. Lewis, much beyond the Chronicles of Narnia, him and Tolkien created this curriculum, which influenced so far beyond their own writings. And I think that was really news to me. And that's so interesting. But how, how would you sum up maybe like the best things about them focusing on a medievalist literature and fantasy and the worst things that came out of that? Because the first thing that came to mind is like, if you're really just looking at medieval literature, it seems like very Eurocentric. I don't know how to use the words to say that, but sort of like conquest narratives where you're always supposed to be the one conquering, all that kind of stuff. So maybe you could just help us kind of figure out what what were some great things about that unique position and what were some some not so great things. Yeah, I mean, I, one thing that is, I think, great is, you know, that it, it took narratives that were often stories that were often um you know, kept for academic circulation, um, or that were maybe not in the wider public knowledge and gave them new life and helped whole new generations of people read them, think about them. Um, and, you know, a lot of the work that Tolkien and Lewis were doing when part of their anti-modernist push was pushing back against this sort of shift towards secularism, towards, um, a kind of feeling of disenchantment with the world, the idea that everything was ambiguous and there was no sense of clarity or purpose. And, you know, I'm, I think there are some, some things that are useful about that way of seeing the world, but I can also see how, you know, how disheartening it could be to, to purely face the world in that way. And so they were trying to pull up stories that, um, gave a little bit more structure, a little bit more clarity, a more hierarchical way of understanding how things might move forward, gave people hope. Um, and, you know, for them, they were pretty overt Christians. And so they understood those messages as usually, uh, or generally speaking, pointing towards Christian belief and hierarchical structures. Um, but of course, that also meant um, doing so within a framework that was uh, as you say, really Eurocentric, um, in particular, Northern Eurocentric, um, and mm-hmm. um, kind of focused on a kind of part of the world, a set of mythologies and beliefs, um, as well as a way of understanding history that very much centered England um, and and more broadly could be read as, well... <laughs> more broadly, you know, ended up even if unthinkingly putting pushing forward white supremacist attitudes, um, because mm-hmm. you know part of that involves, as you say, these kinds of ways of seeing the rest of the world as potentially um, full of inherent races, or full of races that are inherently bad. Um, this has been one of the big mm-hmm. debates, you know, recently, I don't know if you just saw the news that Dungeons and Dragons are just changing their rules. Um, so now there are not inherently evil races at all. And, you know, of course you might say, well, it's fantasy. So what's the difference? But then, you know, why is it that the dark elves with the black skin are 
inherently evil, um, um, or thinking about the ways in which the magical races often map onto, um, modern racist ideas. And, um, and that kind of infiltrates that sort of writing that happens in the fantasy world. And, you know, and that also pulls all the way back from earlier medieval writings, kind of understandings of, um, the peoples of Africa descending from him, um, and the kind of the sin associated with those people um, in that way of thinking and, and how all of this ends up getting kind of um, mixed together and then pushed forward in children's culture <laughs> um, in a way that gets whitewashed over because it is children's culture. So we see it as innocent, as it's not a big deal, it's just all in fun, but it ends up embedding into a whole new generation's thinking um, this way of seeing the world, you know. Oh, oh my gosh. I <laughs> I just keep, I just keep, you know, like so many people, I just want to know, like, so what do we do? What do we do with these books? Now, I have reread um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I actually told you in an email that it's like one of my least favorite books out of the whole series because, and again, I don't even know if my parents told me this, but the allegory to Jesus's life, death, and resurrection were so clear to me, and I am a daughter of a pastor you know I've heard that story a million billion times and so I found it almost boring like okay I've heard this so many times I really enjoyed the other books not all of them but I would say you know um the voyage of the Don Treader had so much interesting like adventure and all these stories and I really like the last battle even though now I think it's really creepy and I um haven't yet tackled my absolute favorite book which was the horse and his boy because I'm really scared. I'm really, really scared to reread that one because I think that's where we see some of this. I don't know. Would you call it like anti-Orientalism? Were they supposed to be stand-ins for like Islamic faiths? I, I Again, I haven't read it as an adult. And so I'm sort of like really scared to go back and look at what was all there when I just remember this amazing like magical interaction between a boy and this horse. And they both actually learn things about themselves and learn how to be better to each other. Um, But that's obviously not all that that book was about. Um, And I know you're an academic, so you can't give me like personal advice, (laughs) but how would you like suggest to go about engaging with, with a text like the horse and his boy? Yeah. I mean, I think, Look, I, I am an academic, so I think that visiting and talking about and thinking about books in general is a good thing. So I, I'm not likely to be someone to tell you, just don't read it, throw it away. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I mean, what I would say is, is to remember that humans are complicated and our, our artistic productions are complicated. Um, you are complicated. And, you know, the things that we, that give us pleasure, the things that we desire, the things that we hope for, those emerge out of a whole combinations of things, a whole combination of things that have been um, building up over the course of our entire lives. And it doesn't help to hate yourself for the, person that you are, um, you can identify elements in um, your pleasures and your desires that maybe are things that you would prefer not to carry forward. Um, but it doesn't mean that you have to like cancel yourself. Um, and it also doesn't mean that you have to look at the the texts and objects that make you feel that way and only see them as monstrous. You know, um, I, I, do, I do think it means that we have to reckon with them and then think about, well, what would we want instead um and how do we be part of 
finding those other things and introducing those things, introducing the kinds of thinking that might push our desires and our pleasures in other directions. Um, and also maybe be part of helping to produce some new things like that. So I, I think it's, it's more, uh, like us, it's more complicated than just like, this is good. This is bad. This is on, this is off. Um, I do think there's a matter of scale where if you're like, I know it's bad, but, and you just only still, I don't know, read super, sexist romance novels um that are you know and that's all you want to do and you don't even want to think about what that might mean to look outside um that is not ideal right but how do you kind of recognize how you feel about certain things and then um also create space for yourself to grow and change you know I love that. And even thinking about what, what you kind of started off with is talking about the joy you found in reading these stories. I think I think it does get really complicated for us. Sometimes we don't want to really look at our desires or look at what enchants us. At the same time, if we do that, um, I think you're right. I think we can start to think, wow, where do I actually want to try and pursue more enchantment in my life? Um, maybe pursuing one that has a vision that includes more people, all people, hopefully, right, would be the goal to be in these stories. So have you seen that change um, in sort of fantasy writing in in recent history? Have, have we seen this change? I think we have. And yet at the same time, you know, looking at Harry Potter, it's still like, oh my gosh, there's hardly any diversity in that really (laughs) maybe maybe I thought it was but that's just like compared to C.S. Lewis or something but what do you see happening in this field well I mean it's definitely been changing and I mean and when I say changing I don't mean that it there hasn't been any kind of writing by authors of color before or writing that centers narratives about people outside of the European tradition before there was certainly a lot of it around and people trying to do that work, but most people were not paying attention to them and giving them book deals. Um, and so, um, we've seen a real burgeoning in the past 10 years, I'd say, especially 10, 15 years, um, of the publishing industry starting to pay attention, um, and mainstream mm. readers starting to be able to get books in their hands. And that means also new book deals are being able to be made. So, um, you see a lot now there is a a much greater diversity of um, kinds of fantasy books out there that you can get your hands on um, that are still doing a lot of the kinds of things that I think uh, medievalist children's fantasy did interestingly, which is take old stories from, you know, long, rich cultural traditions and um, try to make them new for a new generation, but now not just doing it with Eurocentric traditions, you know, um, thinking about mm-hmm. Nydia Korafor's work, which draws on um, a lot of different kinds of uh, African traditions, particularly West African traditions. Her Binti books are um, drawing on, um, well, I won't get into individual ones, but yeah, so Nydia Korafor, for example, N.K. Jemison's work um, has become really celebrated lately. She's quite an amazing writer, um, but you're seeing this from all different backgrounds. I mean, like, I loved The Horse and the Boy when I was a kid, too, and I desperately wanted to travel and see the world. And now when I look at it, it is, you know, it, it balances its fascination with this magical orient with a kind of treating that magical orient as a kind of monstrous, decadent place. And, you know, but now there's other books. You know, Saladin Ahmed's Throne of the Crescent Moon is written from the perspective of people who would live in um, a kind of fantastical version of a uh, kind of Islamic society in set in a kind of desert land, you know, and 
so you can experience those kinds of books, but from the voices of people mm. who might be <laughs> from those cultures, you know. Um, and so I think that there's there's a great opportunity now to to be if you like fantasy, if you used to be interested in that kind of um, writing as a kid and want to maybe come back to it. There's a lot of people who are writing a lot of different kinds of stories um, that are magical, that are based in strong, interesting cultural historical traditions, uh, but not necessarily just centering the West. Oh my gosh, it's like such good advice. I, I remember when I read Little House on the Prairie with my daughter and I was really properly horrified by a lot that was in there. It was it was an amazing experience to find that Louise Erdrich, um, this amazing author, had written a series called the Birchbark House series from the perspective of a little Ojibwe girl. And so it was such a natural way for me to read that with my daughter. And it, it was we loved it. Like my daughter loved that book way more than Little House on the Prairie. And that's what's really important to me too, is like, how can you really see what your kid is into and see what they're like? And so I think you just gave me a little bit of hope. Like I can actually read some fantasy sort of set in that world of horse and his boy that, you know, centers other experiences and, and find some of that joy there in this better way. So I think that's such a lovely, lovely response. I, I do have another question though, because one of the reasons that, you know, C.S. Lewis and his work is so important in, in Tolkien and all these people is because they did have sort of like an organized element, right, to, <clears throat> excuse me, to them shaping curriculum, to being very um, thoughtful about the genre they're writing in. So so do you call it the Oxford School? Was it like, is that what they called themselves? No. <laughs> they didn't, they, they, no, but, but it, they, I mean, Tolkien and Lewis did belong to this writing group called the Inklings and they really saw themselves as kind of working in concert and, and having shared beliefs and values. Um, I call the whole group that I work with the Oxford School because they're all connected through their uh, academic work at Oxford and then their subsequent children's fantasy writing. Okay, so I guess my question is, has the world just fundamentally changed since then? Because it was like such a locus of power, right? Oxford was such a prestigious place. They shaped the curriculum that shaped all these other important influential people. Like I'm an American, I'm middle class, all that stuff. But I got to go to Cambridge last summer and I didn't know anything about it. I actually thought Cambridge and Oxford were the exact same place until I got there. I mean, that's just how much I didn't know. But walking around Cambridge, I was like, this is another world like eating in these dining halls where you have like all these really old white men and these huge oil portraits of their faces just staring down at you all the time I'm like there's no women pictured anywhere but I'm white you know at least I saw white people but there's no women so I'm like I can't even imagine what it would be like to be here if you were a woman of color or something like that just to not see yourself represented in all these great halls of learning there's a plaque on every corner right about some famous dude who who lived there um and so do, do we even have that anymore? Do we have these like centralized locus of power when it comes to like creating children's literature or fantasy or something like that? Or is that sort of something we are getting beyond? Yes, we still have it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, but I think the, the, the movements to try to dismantle are much more vocal and they have a lot more, um, a lot more people are listening, you know, um, I, when I went to Oxford, um, in 2006, I was actually a Rhodes scholar. So I went to Oxford, like under the most like elite circumstances, you know, I didn't know which forks to use. I was like, ah, um, and, and just plunged into this kind of environment of privilege and benefited so much from it. You know, I learned so much. I learned how to move in spaces of power and, you know, all those kinds of things, which, you know, you realize how much, 
advantage people who are kind of already in that pipeline have um, and still have, you know, no matter how much things may change, like, and, and people may object that the the ground is shifting dramatically, really, that's still the case. Um, and, mm. um, you know, but I think we're now in a moment, especially right now well, <laughs> um, in the United States, but really all over the world where there is um, a kind of enough groundswell of attention to recognize that longstanding, you know, racial and um, other kinds of inequality just cannot hold. Um, we'll see if it, if it makes any kinds of long-term changes. I absolutely hope so. Um, but, you know, places like Oxford, um, there's been a big movement there for a while um, called Roads Must Fall about the statue of Cecil Rhodes that was outside of Oriel College. Um, which uh, previously did not yield them bringing down the statue of this major colonialist imperialist. Um, and mm. in the wake of all of the protests um, recently, this month, um, now Oriel College says they're taking it down. Um, and, you know, there's all kinds of people working, myself among them, and I'm sure many people that you know, and maybe some of your listeners are trying to do in their own institutions and um, their mm. own communities to try to, Decenter some of these um, incredible structures of power that have seemed so intractable for so long. So, I mean, you know, Tolkien and Lewis, they would be, I presume, rolling in their graves. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know how to, I don't know how to talk about them as individuals. I don't necessarily want to get into that too much, but um, yeah, maybe I will, whatever. I mean, Lewis and Tolkien, I mean, they wrote and said some pretty racist things. Um, and it doesn't mean that nothing they did ever had any value, but I think we can't ignore that. And um, that mm -hmm. also really has to inform the way we think about the curricula, if you want to call it that, that we build mm -hmm. in our own homes with our own families um, and, you know, in our schools and, and churches and communities too. Yeah. I, I, I just am really glad you said that. I think, again, coming from my background and how we approach these books, um, it, it really wasn't, did not invite criticism into our lives, right? We didn't want to look at the bad things because this is one of the few safe things we could read. And so I know myself and a lot of other people are trying to move beyond that. Um, I wonder if other people are like me and maybe like you said, your students, right. They have the sense of betrayal when we go back and reread books. Uh, what, what do you tell your students? Maybe we'll end on that question. What do you, what do you talk about in class when students do come to you with that sense of betrayal? Because as you know, this is not just about Lewis. This happens to so many people. It's happening right now to people who loved Harry Potter, for instance, and what's going on with JK Rowling and her public statements, um, against the trans community. So this is not just a Lewis question. What, what do you tell your students as we are rereading books and, and experiencing that sense of betrayal? Well, I don't know if this will be as helpful to individuals, but um, in, a, in a classroom setting, what I say is that, you know, when we, we study books because we want to understand them and we want to understand the cultures that produce them and we want to understand ourselves, not because we want to have an appreciation club. Um, and so mm -hmm. there's ways of, of coming at texts and um, not requiring them to be um, the, an absolute good um, and, again, treating them with complexity. If 
you think, you know, one of the most common things that happens in my classes and my students are afraid to read Harry Potter in my class because they're like, oh my God, I know we're going to, it's going to ruin it. I'm going to find all these things there that I didn't want to see. And, you know, I tell them that if you really believe in this book, then you should believe in its ability to stand up to criticism, that it'll produce more under pressure than it would if you didn't put it under pressure. And Mm -hmm. that means that it may find out things about it that you realize you don't like are there, but you may also find things there that you realize are even more ingenious and, and interesting than you thought all along. You know, I'm someone who's not inclined to politically agree with Tolkien and Lewis on many things. Um, And that's not just like race and gender. It's also, you know, they put in pretty overt political things about the role of government um, and, uh, you know, all kinds of things that are just not really my cup of tea. But I can see other things in these books about finding magic in the everyday, the need to feel connected to something larger than yourself um, that I think is really important and and the ways in which the past can help to inform the present and shape the way we try to imagine futures for ourselves. You know, I think all of those things are really rich and, and great. So I think coming to these books and saying, you know, I don't need this book to be perfect. This book can be like a friend, maybe, maybe a friend that, um, you know, you have a lot of disagreements with, but you still still think is valuable. Maybe a friend you decide is doesn't really fit in your life anymore. <laughs> um, but, you know, trying to think about it that way. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. I feel like this is really helpful. <laughs> Hopefully this is not just like me. Um, Having a therapy session with you. With all of us. I mean, some of the a lot. <laughs> it makes, I guess it makes me feel better that other people have that with other books. And again, the Chronicles of Narnia weren't that book in my life, but they are that to so many people. And I, in my email to you, I said, when people find out we're going to be talking about the Chronicles of Narnia, they all say, please don't ruin the books and uh, we can all just take a deep breath. And I think that, um, you know, Simone Weil famously said that prayer is the art of paying attention. I think no matter what we pay attention to, um, there can be really positive things that come out of that. Um, and and it, our attention can be a gift, right? We don't have to just be afraid of it. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this. I uh, We're going to put your book in our show notes. And I really hope people are able to find it, especially if people are... C.S. Lewis nerds, Tolkien nerds, um, you have a lot of stuff in there. And it's this perfect blend of, again, engaging with those themes of enchantment and magic, um, which are so important, and also taking some real critical looks at at some of these other things. So uh, where can people find you online? Are you active online? Is that where you like people to find you? Okay. Yeah, um, you can find me on Twitter at MS Siri. Um, I've got a boring academic website that lists like my publications and talks and that kind of thing. Um, I also do a lot of work for the American Library Association through their Great Stories Club, which is an amazing project. Um, So especially if you are in the library community or have connections to it, I really recommend you have a look at the ALA's Great Stories Club as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us about this book. I think it's been awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. And um, I'm just excited to hear all the other episodes. This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. Find out more at propheticimaginationstation.com. Also, you can follow Danielle and Crispin on Twitter and Instagram, as well as following the Prophetic Imagination Station on Twitter at PIS underscore imagine. 
and on Instagram at Prophetic Imagination Station. Thanks for listening.